Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman. I'm professor at Grove City College in beautiful Western Pennsylvania. And I'm here as always with my long-standing friend, co-host, the Reverend Todd Pruitt of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Todd, uh, we are under a whole heap of smoke that's been dumped on us from Canada this I morning. I see. I saw that uh, in the news. Yes. I'm thinking we need to elect somebody who will build a big enough wall along the northern <laughs> border to stop these clouds coming over from Canada. I agree. I'm, you know, I'm in um I'm in Virginia in the Shenandoah Valley and and the sky is hazy yeah. today. Yeah. Uh from it. It's not as uh not as bad as it is in New York and Pennsylvania, but even down here, there's a haze in the sky. I mean, I knew Canada was trouble for a long time, but uh, now they're really meddling in our in our business. And yeah. so I think something's going to have to be done. It's I, I mean, I'm not suggesting a military invasion of Canada per se, but let's if it comes down to that, it won't take very long. I mean, let's yeah. face it. Right. Well, D.C. is blanketed because my youngest son is there, as you know, and uh, that is suffering too. So Uh anyway, we need to get on with the business of the day. It's a a real thrill for me today to have uh, as a guest on the program somebody whose writing I've admired for quite a while. I first came across her name uh, in the uh, British uh, sort of daily online magazine of dissenting thought, Unheard which is a, a, an ezine devoted neither to the right nor to the left, but devoted to getting opinions at angular opinions on things that provoke thought. So you'll have, for example, the Marxist critic Terry Eagleton will write provocative pieces for them uh, with regularity. And you'll have various other voices that dissent from the emerging kind of consensus Uh, in the West. And among those voices, one of the most regular and one of the most consistently entertaining and stimulating is that of Mary Harrington. Mary is a graduate of the University of Oxford, but as I said to her before the program started, nobody is perfect. Uh, And she is also Uh, a contributing editor at Unheard. Her work has appeared in the Times of London, The Spectator. By the way, I do recommend The the British Spectator to our listenership. Mm It often has very, very thoughtful commentary on uh, the way the world is. The New Statesman, which if you come from Britain, no, it, it, it's kind of the, the anti-spectator. That's the sort of the spectator with a more left-wing slant. Uh, the Daily Mail and, of course, uh, the uh, magazine where I myself serve as a contributing editor, First Things. Most recently, she is the author of a book that I, every year, for some reason, Catholic World Report asked me to name my book of the year. And I'm thinking I've already read my book of the year this year, uh, Mary Harrington's Feminism Against Progress, which is a wonderful take on 
the state of the world in which we uh, live and has also coined a most memorable phrase, which I hope to explore a little bit later. Meet Lego Gnosticism. Uh, If ever there was a phrase that I wished (laughs) I had the wit to think up, it would have been that one. Uh, I have been quoting that and attributing it in lectures uh, ever since I read it. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to work that into a sermon. Actually, Uh, Uh, when I first read the term, I, uh, I howled out loud uh, because it was so perfect. It, it captures it brilliantly. And uh, somebody sent me a picture a few weeks ago of a, a box of chopped up pork and, and referred to it as a pepper pig jigsaw. And I immediately <laughs> thought of Mary's book when I saw that. So, so Mary, uh, I don't want to sound like too much of a fanboy here, but it really is wonderful to have you on the show. Well, thank you for having me, Carl. So, Mary, one of the things that that really caught my eye, you know, your book is, is, is a sort of – uh, you're advocating a kind of what, what might be called reactionary kind of feminism, which is a feminism that, that is trying to recapture the importance of what it means to be a woman, but in a way that doesn't uh, regress to, to old kind of cultural stereotypes. And one of the things that that grabbed my imagination early in the book was your account of how uh, your life was changed by the birth of your daughter. And you express this in in a stunning way in, when you say that I can't remember exactly the phrase you use, but essentially you say that after your daughter was born, you couldn't stop believing she was part of your body, and that that brought with it significant obligations and a significant transformation of how you thought about the world. And that struck me as a very striking inversion of the usual mm. feminist idea that, hey, what's in my womb is, is just a part of my body. I wonder if you could could talk about that a little bit for us. So it was a very powerful moment of personal testimony. Well, I suppose up until that point, I'd more or less taken for granted the, the modern liberal feminist belief, which was that pursuing women's interests meant pursuing maximal freedom, which I which generally understood as freedom from things, freedom from any obligation to be a certain way, to do certain things, to act or dress according to certain norms or stereotypes and to pursue any and freedom from constraints in terms of professional choices or personal choices or, or really on, on any front you care to name. That was my, that was my understanding of it, but that, that necessarily means um, a sense of be, of separateness from everything. You know, if you, if you're going to be free to do anything you want, you know, that, that implies that you're a, a, a sort of a, a measure of detachment from, from everyone and everything around you. Um, and I've, and what I found so disorienting about becoming a mum was that this was a fun. This it was obviously, um, you know, becoming a mum is a fundamental aspect of being a woman. I mean, it's, only women can give birth, so it, it's, it's difficult to argue that, that there isn't something constitutively, definitively female about becoming a mother. And yet, the experience of being a mother just completely blew that idea of separateness is always good out of the water. Um, I mean, it's, I'm, I'm definitely, I'm definitely not the only mum I've ever heard describe it as feeling, feeling like you've grown an extra limb. That's now, and it, and it really does feel existentially like that. Certainly, it did for me, and you know, other other mothers of my acquaintance have have corroborated this. It's as though you've grown an extra internal organ, or another arm, or a leg, or something. And I mean, you know, you. you if you if you feel like your own arm or leg is in danger, you do you'll do you'll move heaven and earth to to avert. Uh, injury or injury or damage to your own arms and legs and it feels and and when when it comes to you know possible threats to your own baby it's that visceral 
It really is that it, it, she she just felt like an extension of me, and to, you know, for nine months she literally was. She was she was inseparable. She was she was part of my own viscera, and that that feeling just did, it just doesn't go away overnight. I mean, I think it for for me she didn't really stop feeling like a separate person for a solid year and a half, two years mm. at all. And I mean, even even now, even now, the mum Bluetooth is, is is still going strong. Six years later, it changes over time, but that 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 very intense feeling of merger just goes on for a very long time after birth. And I mean, from a from a sort of practical uh, evolutionary point of view, it makes sense. And it's and it's the same the same phenomenon is visible in plenty of mammal species other than humans. And it's a it's an adaptive part of looking after a very vulnerable, dependent um, young creature. That the that 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 sense of um, merger with your baby um but but the but from a from a philosophical point of view from a from a metaphysical from a political point of view i suppose you could say you know it's it's one thing being a sheep and and you know being willing to go fight to the death to to, to protect your newborn lamb but it's another thing being a woman in the 21st century having internalized a century odd of, you know a solid 60 years of second wave feminism and trying to process that experience it's incredibly disorienting um, because what what it's the 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 physiological experience it was in sort of neurochemical. I mean, it is literally a neurochemical transformation, um, on, uh, and it happens at all, all kinds of not very conscious at all levels. And I, and that, and I'm trying to square that with an ideology which says that in in my interests, um, the exact opposite of that ought to be ought to be true as far as possible. And I'm thinking this just this just doesn't add up. Something I'm missing something here. So th- there's either there's either a a kind there are either feminist voices that I haven't found yet who who have been sidelined from the from the mainstream, or there's something missing in feminism generally, or some, some, something something's off here. You know how can how can the entirety of feminism have a mother shaped blind spot? And I mean, I so I'm being being a nerd. Of course, I went <laughs> digging, um, um, and it turned out it turned out that all of those things are true. Um, you know, there are there are maternal feminists who have been sidelined. And that started me thinking, well, why have they been sidelined? How have they been sidelined? How did we end up here? And then and to cut a very long story, very relatively short, I went all the way down that rabbit hole and came to the conclusion that what we, what we think of as feminism can be, isn't really an evidence of progress as such, but more of women's responses to new technological developments since the beginning of industrialization. And that second wave feminism in particular, this version of freedom feminism, which I just internalized as the entirety of feminism, is not the entirety of feminism. It is in fact what was left on the battlefield after the two poles which had characterized feminism throughout the industrial era were, was, were, were resolved into one at the end of the industrial era. Which was, in fact, fifty years ago. So <laughs> I should probably <laughs> unpack that for you a little bit. Um, so to, 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 to come at that again from the other end of the telescope, uh, my, the, the thesis I found myself at, some somewhat surprised to find blinking, in 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 in, was was that we we no longer live in the industrial era. We have, in fact, been in a new era, which I've called the cyborg era, for some fifty years. Um, and what marches under the banner of feminism in the cyborg era is, in fact, something more accurately described as biolibertarianism, as a libertarianism of the body, uh, which which characterizes itself as feminism and has hitched itself to the coattails of women's emancipation and has expanded from women's emancipation into the emancipation of everyone, really from from the the givens of our own bodies, Um, and and is now waging an all-out assault on the idea of human nature as such, 
um, which to my eye is mostly benefiting big pharma and big mm. business and is not doing a huge amount for anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and that in the course of that, um, a, a great deal of what had previously been an, a hugely rich and important part of a just and appropriate feminist movement, which flourished during the industrial era, um, which is to say all of those voices who are advocating for women as embodied human beings in relation to our children and our families and our and our neighbourhoods and our communities had been effectively memory hold because it lost the battle. But that, but that, uh, and the reason the reason we don't hear about it is because because the winners write the history books. It's just mm. as simple as that. Mm. So, 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 so that's my thesis, which I think I sort of told backwards and then forwards and then sideways. <laughs> <laughs> but I hope it makes sense. It does make sense. It does. It does. And it, it's funny. I spent the last couple of days wading through Adorno and Horkheimer's dialectic mm. of enlightenment. And uh, what what struck me is how much of the early critical theorists, how how much of this they sort of spotted. Now, I think they would move in very different directions to the three of us. But, uh, you know, technology seems absolutely critical. And one of the things I liked about your book, Mary, and, and Todd may want to comment on this, is you picked up on something I completely missed when I wrote my book on the self. And that is I treated the trans issue as part of the political LGBTQ issue, which it is. But of course, it's also really a subset of transhumanism, which I think is is what you are pointing towards in, in the statement that you've just made. Well, absolutely. And I don't think you need to take my word for that. You can also take the word of Martine Rothblatt, who is a leading transhumanist and transgender activist and who explicitly connects those two issues in a 2011 book called From Transgender to Transhuman. I mean, it, it, it does, which does what it says on the tin. It sets out, it sets out the game plan for getting from trans rights activism to transhumanism more generally. Yeah, you know, which is available online, I think, for anybody who wants to to check that yeah. out. That's yeah. uh, it's a powerful book, Todd. Well, one of the things that occurred to me that was so helpful as I was, I mean, the the book is eminently readable, and yet uh, I, I kept having all of these sort of. Um, new explosions of thought that was that that were going off in my mind as I was reading it, and I was I'm taking notes in the margins because uh, Mary, I pastor a church with lots of people in it. We have lots of youth and lots of college students and and their parents, so I'm constantly fielding questions about things that they are encountering along the lines of the very things you're writing about here, and write about also in your in your columns. In, incidentally, I might I don't know if it would surprise you or not to know that when I posted when I posted Carl's a review of your book a couple of weeks ago, I heard from various Presbyterian pastors who said, oh, I've been reading her for a while now. I've really enjoyed her. And so you've got these uh, 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 Presbyterian pastors who are, who've actually been following you and, and have uh, appreciated your book. And I think the reason why um, Christians like myself and Carl find your book so important is because of the, if if I can use this phrase, the, the intersection of a lot of what I do with some of the very points you're making and, and the things that I'm trying to explain to people, I'm now actually able to explain better because of a lot of the categories I've gotten a hold of from your book. I, we were talking about this before we came on air, but I've, I've, and, and I'm, I'm going to get to it before, before Carl has a chance. Um, you have this uh, wonderful line as you're explaining kind of the big picture of what progress is and and you call it progress theology which i thought 
it was a very helpful term. And I, and I want you to kind of unpack that in a moment, but, but you make this great uh, statement. Um, in this vision, our bodies cease to be independent, sexed, and sentient, and are instead reimagined as a kind of meat Lego built on parts that can reassemble at will. First of all, the, the, the statement meat Lego is, is one of the best ones I've run across in a while. Um, but unpack that a little bit because, and, and I think as we talk about transhumanism, we're starting to, to, to get into that. I mean, we, we have this unusual phenomenon where, you know, Martina Navratilova is all of a sudden a, um, a figure of the right, you know, because she, because she says things like, Maybe maybe men shouldn't compete in women's sports, and now all of a sudden Mar- Martina Navratilova has been re- reconfigured as a sort of a menacing right wing uh, figure over this, and it's you know it's because she's made statements that uh, kind of contradict with the whole meat Lego um, kind of concept that you that that you point out. But I wonder if you would unpack that a little bit about what you're getting at there. Sure. So the dog, the dog has just wandered in to say hello. <laughs> we are dog um, lovers, don't worry. And <laughs> <laughs> so, if you hear grumbling in the background, that's what's going. On. Um, sure. So, meet Lego. Um, I mean, this is. I mean, I, I, I tend to sort of mean first and ask questions later, and it just seems it, it seemed like an appropriate way of describing. Um, what seems to me a, a completely back to front way of looking at what bodies are and what they do in the sense that, you know, we, we are entire organisms and we have developmental pathways and we have a beginning and a middle and an end. I mean, this is, this is true of all living creatures. You know, we're born somewhere in, in fairly predictable ways. And, you know, we have a, of course, all of our lives are different in, in wonderful ways, but there are, there are common developmental pathways and puberty follows the paths it follows depending on which sex you are. And, you know, babies are made. We, we all know how babies are made. Um, or we used to. Um, and, 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 you know, and then the, the human lifespan hasn't changed a great deal since, since biblical times, not really. Um, you know, all these things, you know, there are the, 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 the template is fairly, fairly robust and, you know, evolutionary psychology has filled in a lot of the shades and, and so on. Um, and and the the meat Lego worldview, which begins from the premise that we we can and should be maximally free, um, looks at all of this and says these are all constraints on what I could be. Hmm. Um, there's a there is an I that's separable from all of this, um, which I'm just going to posit, and I'm just uh, my leap of faith will be to say that this exists. Now, I can't prove it, but it exists. Hmm. Um, and then and I'll and on that basis, I will claim that if I, I will reimagine all of these normative templates and pathways and organismic developmental features of the of the human human being um, as expressive options that I can switch on and off. And all and this this becomes thinkable in direct proportion to um, our technological ability actually to do that or to give ourselves the impression that we can do that. And, I, and I've, I've argued in the book that this really begins with the contraceptive pill. I've, I've developed that argument mm. actually since I wrote the book. Um, the at which point it became imaginable for the first time that the reproductive processes, which had previously just been hard limits on what on, on particularly the behaviour of women, but really the behaviour of everybody, um, were were now could, could now be switched on and off, and, and and indeed the contraceptive pill does do that remarkably effectively. I believe it's ninety eight percent effective, or is it? It might be a bit less than that. Anyway, it's it's fairly it's fairly effective. Mm-hmm. So you take a pill, and this and what what was previously a hard limit is suddenly not 
and this is, I mean, of course, this is a seismic, it's a seismic cultural moment as well as being a, a seismic, uh, well, sexual. And yeah, it, it, it's an absolutely transformative moment because at that point it becomes thinkable that we can, we can rewrite our organismic processes at, the, at this absolutely fundamental um, level of our, of, you know, and, and, and from, from there, having, having, having accepted in principle that you can do this, it's difficult to see why you should stop at uh, female fertility. You know, if, if if we've accepted in principle that it's it's a legitimate part of medicine, not just to fix things which are broken, but to break things which are working properly, for example, fertility, um, in the interests of desire, why, why should we not extend that infinitely? Uh, at that point, well, once you've accepted that in principle, why why should we not extend that to remodeling our remodeling our secondary sex characteristics in line with individual individual expressive preferences, for example? Why should we not extend that to remodeling the human form altogether? In, in line with expressive preferences. This is really the Martin Rothblatt position. Um, Rothblatt is arguing for freedom, what, he, what, what, what the book describes as freedom of form, which is to, and, and, and which is framed in, in that text very much as, a, a, as an issue of emancipation, if you like, the ultimate liberal issue, which is, which is liberation from, from human embodiment in, into whatever, whatever form is desired. And which throws up all sorts of metaphysical questions that we don't really have time to get into here. But really, what what, what I'm trying to what, what I'm trying to unpack is uh, is how how you get from what I see as a, a a basic premise, which has some has some common characteristics with the ancient Gnostic heresy, which is to say the idea that matter is inferior and evil and can and should be overcome by a a, a, a self of pure idea. Or a posited self of pure idea, which which is is, is believed capable of being freed from the world of matter. Um, I mean, there there are some differences with with the the in in the neo gnostic worldview, which we may or may not have time to get into. Um, and then and and then extends that paradoxically um, uses that to embrace an incredibly materialistic understanding of what that liberation would look like, um, and and does so. Um, I think probably for me, the most, to, in, to my eye, the most salient dif dis difference between the ancient Gnostic heresy and the modern one is that the ancient her heresy, the, the, the ancient Gnostics believed that there was a world of forms. They, 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 what they wanted to get back to, to the Platonic world of pure ideas, which they thought existed and was higher and better. Um, whereas the, the modern neo-Gnostic idea seems to be that, the, that there, are no, there are no forms. There is there is no such thing as human nature. There's no such thing as as an ideal, a, a world of ideas. Um, all there is is a world of pure expressive desire, and we ought to emancipate ourselves from from the the corrupt, um, imperfect world of matter, uh, in, to to pursue, I don't know what, but to to pursue what, whatever it is that we want, whatever that happens to be. Mm. Um, it's a sort of it, it's bizarrely empty um, compared to compared even to the Gnostic heresy. Yeah. And it's, it's such an incongruity, and you point this out, uh, the, because we are talking about a kind of Gnosticism here, and, and yet it seems to issue forth, at least in its contemporary expression, in almost entirely um, material um, expressions. Yeah, I think that's the, that's the unique, that's the very dark thing about it in the sense that it's structurally inseparable from what it, what it claims to be oppressed yeah. by. Um, so that so there's a it, it has it has its own defeat built into it, and it's ha it has its own it, ha it, it has its own destruction and despair built into it. Huh. In a way that I think is that there's, there's something there's something incredibly cruel 
about setting people on that path and then telling them that it's going to be their salvation. There's something very, very dark and uh, dark. And, yeah, hmm. cruel about that. Yeah. Well, one question. My sort of last question here is this: you know, in some ways, the book is 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 quite bleak. Uh, and I'm frequently accused of writing pretty bleak stuff myself. But do you see where do you see grounds for hope? Oh, there's always there's always grounds for hope. Um, I mean, there's the there's the doomer optimist uh, perspective, which says that this the 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 model of techno capital, which I've been critiquing in the book, is is structurally antinatalist to the point where it's just going to delete itself. From from the from the meme pool eventually, <laughs> because it's it, it because it doesn't it doesn't reproduce itself. In right. fact, it does the exact yeah. opposite. It's a it, it it shreds it shreds its own reproductive potential. It, it's a very it's a sort of self cannibalizing mm. um, e- economic and cultural order. Yeah, but so so one outcome one outcome is just that um, it it en- it ends up self devouring to the point that the only people left are the Amish and the Mennonites who never got on never, who, who never got on that train. That that's one possible outcome, and I, you know it's not <laughs> it's not completely impossible. Um, I guess I guess there's a there's a whole bunch of more more upbeat possibilities, including that. Well, I mean, where I where I like to see hope um, is is in my my conviction that it doesn't matter how hard you try and abolish human nature or and it, it it finds a way. Human nature comes back. I mean, I've, I've tried to show on through a bunch of different lenses in the book how attempts to abolish human nature in in transhumanist terms, for example, in the relations between men and women, the relationships between um, mothers and babies, and and even and actually the meat Lego relation with our own bodies, um, never succeeds in abolishing human nature. All it does is reorder our nature to the market, mm. um, and it's it, my my hope. Where I see hope is is that pe- off, off people try that and then they realise it sucks, and they then they, they they look for other ways of living which are less which which are less empty and less self destructive. It's my hope that more more of the generations after me after mine will get there more quickly than I did. I I, I, I reached escape velocity just about in time, and but but I came out with a, with a lot of battle scars, and I would. Mm-hmm. If there's if there's one thing would be, I, I hope from writing the book is that there are there'll be younger women out there who will get out before I did, and, and you know having having taken fewer dents. So, but but I, I see it happening. I mean, I see I, I see a generation of younger women who are who are very much more realist about um, about the trade offs between between freedom and obligation, between between love and duty, between embodiment and emancipation. And between um, meaning and meaning and power, I suppose. Um, re- re- I, I should say young young men and women, but this is this is something that you have to think about very much more concretely. I think if you're if you're a woman who wants a family, um, because there are there are points where that 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 zero sum competition between between love and liberty is 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 very intense. Mm. Um, certainly, if you if, yeah, if you want to have a if you want to have a family at all. There are, there are some points where it's just straight up zero sum, um, and and I think I, I think there's for, for for a number of decades we haven't been very honest about that. But there are I, I see a generation of young women coming through who are be, who are very much more grounded and very much more pragmatic about that, and who are who are thinking in in practical terms from the get go about how to order their lives such that um, they're not having it all, but they're that they're well set up to have a lot. 
um, which I, well, I just think is a sane and healthy way to think about it. And, and those those people exist, and you know, I'm sure they're. I mean, they're, they're subcultural pockets at the moment. But it's amazing. That, you know, you've got to start somewhere, haven't you? Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, if they, if if what's if what those those people are creating is subcultures which have the ability to flourish, then they will flourish, even if the the remainder of the culture is is busy cannibalizing itself around them. You know, they'll they they stand a much better chance of of being being what's left standing. Mm, at the end answer. of the day it is it is well our guest today has been mary harrington she is the author of feminism against progress and as carl mentioned at the beginning of our program you can also follow mary's work in various other uh, venues and it's well worth doing that um our listeners who are largely christian will if you read this book and i would encourage you to do that um, I hope one of the thoughts you walk away with is that truth is robust and that um, those of us who uh, look at the world through a, a biblical lens will find so much um, in this book that resonates with us about the goodness of the human body, the coherence of, of um, uh, the mind and the body, that we are not just um, uh, minds afloat, nor are we just simply meet Legos, but, but there is a, a coherence to our createdness um, that is unavoidable. Um, and you'll be encouraged to think deeply um, about um, our createdness and how we've been made. And, and I, I, I would encourage you to, to get this book into the hands of some folks who have maybe believed um, uh, the, the, the very emotionally appealing, but, but ultimately, um, empty narrative of what Mary Harrington calls, uh, progress theology, um, and give them a chance to, to grapple with the much better, um, but more complex, but much better, um, narrative, um, that's, that coheres closely with truth and the truth that we, um, see woven throughout nature. Um, so it's been a, a good discussion. We could go on and on. But I would encourage our listeners to go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, and there you'll be able to register for a free copy of this important book by Mary Harrington, Feminism Against Progress. And uh, while you're there, if you'd like to make a donation to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, you can do so, so that uh, the Alliance can continue to offer good and thoughtful um, and stimulating content um, like this. Well, we are so thankful that uh, you chose to join us today, and we look forward to being with you next time on Mortification of Spin. Man, I feel like a woman. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Mortification of Spin.